Okay. Hello, I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. Welcome to Season 11, Episode 2 of Seen From Above, an informal podcast about the cool things happening in Earth Observation. Check out seenfromabove.org for the podcast archive and show notes. Follow the show on Twitter via at EOSeenFrom and using the hashtag SeenFromAbove. In this episode, we talk about external disruption. So let's do the news then. On the 29th, September 2021, um, where to start? Oh, there's only, only one place to start. Only one place there? to start. <laughs> Landsat 9. <laughs> I guess that's what you were implying as well. Yep. But, but Landsat 9, I mean, what can you say? Brings the continuity of the mission up. And I think it's on a 100-day commissioning cycle now. And then we'll hopefully get some data coming down. I've actually sort of wondered what will be the first image that comes down. Mildly fascinating. You know, obviously the, the main thing being Landsat 9, but the official launch video on uh, all this coverage on um, NASA TV. I don't know if you watched that. That was really fantastic. That was one of the one of the better ones I've seen. It sort of talks to users, talks about what Landsat 9 is going to be, what it means. And, and it was really, really well put together. And obviously shout out to... Ladies of Landsat, um, Kate Fickus was yes. was interviewed on there, and I think I tweeted about what time it was on the timestamp. It was something like one hour forty five of the the broadcast. So about right. I think about an hour after Landsat had launched, like, roughly. Yeah, I, I think there's been so many positives about this launch. I mean, the other thing that really struck me was that. Landsat 9 was mentioned at least twice on the BBC News, like mainstream BBC News, and they were talking about Landsat 9 and how it was up there and helping to um, collect imagery and and create this time series and things like that. And then there was another programme on BBC Radio that I heard where they were discussing it, and I thought, this is is nuts. When you think back, even 10 years, no one was talking about Earth observation, and now it's mainstream news. So hats off to the BBC for making it mainstream news. Hats off to Ladies of Landsat for everything they've done. Hats off to everyone involved in Landsat and Landsat Nine in particular. I think it's it, this is a real changing point where Earth observation and Earth observation data are just being talked about as the thing that is required to help manage what we have in terms of resources on the earth yeah i mean on that broadcast i was incredibly impressed by the range of interviewees as well there was the guy who'd been basically running it running landsat nine for the last whatever it was four or five years and was asked i'm paraphrasing this you know how how are you feeling at this moment and he was very sort of relaxed and calm and it's like you know giving full credit to everyone who'd worked on it but i think if that had been me i'd be sort of (laughs) You know how you're feeling? I'm like, I'm so stressed. (laughs) But I I just, it's just wonderful, isn't it? And also, as you mentioned, the BBC, a lot of photos coming down on Twitter and on the BBC about the re-entry burn for the Atlas V rocket coming back in and was seen over the UK. So that was also sort of quite nice that, that that had been picked up. 
Cool. I just want to quickly raise a couple of conferences that are happening as we speak. So the UK Space Conference has started and Phosphor-G has also started. There's been lots of information about both of these on the web. And by the time that you listen to this podcast, they'll both be over. But I just thought it's worth mentioning uh, that they're happening. Yeah. Okay, cool. So I've, I've got sort of like a bits and pieces, as it were. Okay, yeah. So the, in no particular order, uh, there's a brilliant thread on uh, machine learning by Timbada Danka, um, not necessarily Earth observation focused, well, definitely not Earth observation focused, but really good links to videos and courses and stuff like that. I mean, it's just such a huge world to dip your toe into. And he's basically saying, you don't need to go to university. You can just do it from your living room for, com- for completely free. Have a look at that tweet if you're interested in getting into machine learning, deep learning. There's all sorts of resources for Python, R, et cetera, et cetera. Sorry, just before you move on, I don't want to be really tragic, but one of the things that really fascinates me as well is some of the uh, ways that people are using Twitter threads is becoming really interesting. He sets it out beforehand in his first uh, tweet of the thread or his second one of the thread as to how he's going to structure uh, yeah. his information on the course. It's, it's just really fascinating as an aside i think that i need to learn how to use twitter better um other things to mention really amazing blog not earth observation related but it's called being the dri of your career um really really resonates with me because this is a blog about basically taking control of your career and it's certainly something that impacted me five six years ago where i i felt that i wasn't really in control of my career there's five parts in this in this blog, um, learning from feedback and distinguishing what your employer rents versus what they buy from you. But it's point three that I think is most critical, which is own your professional development. This is so important, I think, in, in terms of understanding where you want to go. And my third quick, <laughs> quick dash of, of news is another GitHub awesome resource. This one's awesome spectral indices a curated list of spectral indices for remote sensing applications. Now, this is a really useful thing. It's all been structured and there's links to the papers related to the different indices and a table outlining the relative bands for Sentinel-2, Landsat-8 and uh, MODIS. So go and check that out if, if, if that's of interest to you. I'm, I can't think why it wouldn't be if you were listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, some really good choices. Yeah, really interesting. That blog post in particular on on. Career looks really interesting. So I've got two more things. One is that the Knowledge Transfer Network, KTN, are launching something called the Space and Geospatial Virtual Pavilion for COP26. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And that's basically a way for the geospatial community to come around COP26 and the things that are happening there. And for people to learn a little bit more about how space and geospatial can help with the, the transition to net zeros. The other thing is a really good Twitter thread again by Ujaval Gandhi at Spatial Thoughts on Twitter. And this thread is about some of the changes that have been made in GDAL and how you might have a bit of a gotcha moment if you're trying to do some of the reprojecting. If you're into reprojecting stuff using GDAL, then have a look through that. There's a whole host of comments as well after um, yeah, that's a really interesting thread, I thought. Yeah, actually, it's funny, isn't it? Because basically, as a freelancer, it's always projection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is always projection. You wouldn't believe how often the answer is, it's a projection issue. With your, um, was it the KTM Pavilion thing you were yes, mentioning? Yeah. Slightly related to that, this week, the UK government released its space 
strategy i think it's called oh yes yeah i um, haven't had time to even go near that so. uh, it's 40 odd pages i sat down and read it over lunch wow uh because i'm interested in this kind of stuff yeah i would recommend people to read it and yeah you've got a you've got to sort of step over the bits that are sort of quite politically phrased but there are some interesting things in there anyway that was a slight aggression the final thing is if ever you want to find a blog or remote sensing that's sort of just coming out or you know people getting into it the best place to look i think is always people who are sort of starting off on their phds mm-hmm. they're really striving to promote themselves you know write write posts get their work noticed, all this kind of stuff. Priya Patel has written a very nice EO-based newsletter, Earthbound. There's lots of stuff in Earth Engine and Python and R. You can go and read the old posts. When a new thing like this pops up, I think it's really great to sort of get behind it and support the content and, and you know, you may even learn something. That's it for the news. Okay, on our topic today, this is something that was suggested to us by Aravind, so at Aravind underscore Raves on Twitter. So thanks very much for suggesting that we talk about this. So Aravind's original message said something along the lines of, I'd love to hear from you guys about how you perceive non-EO companies entering into EO and geospatial. Companies like Mobius Labs, who develop computer vision algorithms. And uh, Aravind goes on to ask, is geospatial open for disruption from the outside? at least with respect to computer vision and AI. So I thought this was, well, it was a bit of a challenge and it's an interesting one and something that is obviously pretty pertinent at the moment with all the various different companies that seem to be coming into fruition around geospatial data. I thought it would be worth us having a bit of a chat about this and seeing what we think about it. I hadn't come across Mobius Labs. Had you come across Mobius before? No. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) At the end. (laughs) The short answer is yes. The biggest developments in the geospatial world, if that's uh, the right term, Mm. generally come from non-geospatial based companies. I've had this thing before in in my mind about companies like Amazons, your Googles, your Facebooks. They all have a geo component and yet they're not geospatial companies. So while it's a slight digression from the direct question... When there's a problem encountered by companies like Google and Apple and, and, and the like, I'm sure that they have a good look around at the market, but they don't get stuck in the world that I think we can potentially get stuck into. They actually go direct at their problem. Sometimes that works and it works amazingly well and a good example of that is slippy maps google maps came along and it changed the way we did web mapping they changed the incumbents in in geo certainly by doing that and in terms of the earth observation sort of computer vision algorithm and and processing uh, absolutely and i think it would be nuts not to look outside of our industry to see what other people are doing whether it be medical imaging or whatever in terms of image processing that we can learn lessons from I've always felt we were quite lucky that the machine learning revolution, if that's the right word, sort of fell into our laps a bit because we've been using very continuous cell-based data. And it's not a problem for us to cut it down to 128 by 128 or whatever it may be. The hard bit that people new to the sector come into is, is understanding the data, understanding the corrections, you know, more than three bands, the geo aspect. But even now with amazing tools like Rasta.io and, and the like, that is I think less of a challenge 
it, it's still hard to install Gina on a computer sometimes. <laughs> and that can be a barrier to entry. I think ultimately, yes, it's easy for non-geo or non-EO companies to see, hang on a second, there's a huge array of data coming down, you know, terabytes a day they can draw on. And there's loads of cool companies out there sort of doing things with Earth observation data. I think the potential problem is that we try and see it as a, an end-over-end solution to everything. I think as well, because humans are such visual creatures, that there's a real danger that new companies that are coming into the sector... Actually, sorry, even my language there is making the assumption that they're coming into the sector. So new companies are using geospatial data. And I think the geospatial sector are trying to pull them in and say, you are a geospatial company. But actually, if you look at what they're trying to do, quite often, they're not. They they all have a single problem that they're trying to solve, and they happen to be solving it through yeah. use yeah. of geospatial data. Now, I think the, the, the danger for those new companies, these small startups that are getting lots of funding and everyone's making big noise about them, is that they start to promote their nice images and their nice maps, which is fine. And it's an easy thing to do. It's an easy win because everyone loves to look at a really nice image. But actually, the clever companies will be those that just carry on doing whatever they're doing, but have made a 60% increase in their efficiency by using some form of geodata, uh, whether that's Earth observation or some other form. And they're not necessarily making a big song and dance about the fact they've got this lovely imagery, but they are extracting the information from it and they're just getting on this week in the uk we've got a fuel crisis in inverted commas and whether your local garage or a garage near you has fuel is inherently a geospatial question yes yeah and there's just nothing out there that would resolve that question for you and every time things like this present themselves we as an industry don't have a solution to the fundamental problem or the fundamental question of, is there a tool that can tell us an answer to this? And unfortunately, it's quite a niche sort of thing. But ultimately, what you come to rely upon is word of mouth, phoning up the garage, whatever it may be, or looking at Google Maps and trying to see, based on their traffic counters, make your own interpretation of whether that queue is indicative of of having fuel. Now, I'm not saying saying at all that Landsat 8 is going to, give you that answer but it's these sort of geospatial components to questions that we have to somehow help with there are so many questions that have this component that it's concerning inside the industry that we don't go at these problems much harder that we rely upon outsiders or people challenging maybe like mobius labs or another company to say this is the problem and we need to somehow find a solution to it And that's where it's refreshing when someone comes in and they see this is an issue, as opposed to the other way of looking at it, I I think at least, of saying, oh, there's there's satellite data coming down every day. Let's see if a farmer wants to buy NDVI offers. So much of Earth observation and geospatial more widely ends up being bespoke in terms of the solutions that are created. In some respects, I think that if a company was to come along and make a unified system that meant that you could ask your question and get the answer, then that would be a huge success. Because just thinking about what you were talking about with the petrol, so the first geospatial question you have is, where are the petrol stations? The next one is, where are they in relation to where you are currently. The next one is, is there any petrol? 
And then there's, are they busy? And then there's another one, which is, do you have enough petrol in your vehicle to get to the petrol station to fill up with petrol that you need? And each one of those questions currently, as, as far as I'm aware, would need to be thought through and processed in its own way. There isn't any platform or system where you could just put all of those questions in and very quickly come to an answer. Okay, yes, I have 10 petrol stations within, I don't know, five miles of where I am. Three of them have petrol and I can get to two of them. That's the information that really the people in the in the vehicles want. I, I absolutely agree. I'm not saying it's easy. I mean, the storage and plotting of locations are fuel stations is relatively the lowest hanging fruit yeah. is the equivalent <laughs> yeah. of plotting where's my nearest coffee shop data is messy we shouldn't conflict at things like that and we are getting slightly off at a tangent for Murph observation but geospatial is where the real value is but too much of geospatial is done in hindsight but in hindsight the value to the joe blogs on the street is virtually zero it's an amusement after the event yeah. It's not a problem anymore. I don't, I don't care. <laughs> I want to the next problem, which, which may be weather related, that again has a massive geospatial component that has Earth observation and, and satellite measurements and all this kind of stuff in. Yeah, I, I think that outside companies see a huge opportunity, a huge opportunity using this data. I guess one of the one of the holy grails is to find a way of getting this kind of real time information back. We need the non-EO companies, the non-GO companies to come along and say, this is what we're doing. One of the things I was thinking of when I was trying to get my head around the question that Aravind had asked is I was wondering whether or not the fact that in Earth Observation we have a, a really positive and I think open to ideas community of people who are working in in this area. And I was wondering whether or not having such a community and one that is moving towards, if not predominantly using open tech and things like that, whether that makes the community and the sector more receptive to new ideas. And so that as companies who hire data scientists and devs and what have you, uh, who don't have any geo or EO experience, come to, to look at our data actually we're welcoming them in to to come and help disrupt is, is, do, you, do you think that's something that's happening from it being open yeah the, the fact we're open as a community and as a sector we're, we're sort of welcome to the ideas of disruption rather than seeing disruption as something that's inherently going to be a negative for for the companies that are already here yeah, I think I would agree with that. I think that's a fair thing to say. The open data will, will almost blase about it in a way. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's stated enough that the open software is the thing that's probably the most radical in the sense that if it wasn't for things like GDAL. I mean, where would we be without GDAL? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's kind of, it, we'd be absolutely stuffed. I wonder if, you know, it lends itself to the sort of the perfect kind of storm where the data is open, the software is open. So the barriers to entry in terms of data cost and, and using the data are pretty much zero. I, I think that's an undervalued thing within companies, from my experience, but it's something that is not as frightening as a huge bill for data. I think it's more receptive to learn as they go. And, you know, for the most part, with things like Stack, you know, the, 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 the slow standardization of searching for data, if you, if you get into that, then that's going to be the same, hopefully, for other satellite data sources. I mean, it's hard to say that everybody will adopt it, but you wouldn't want to 
be not adopting it now yeah it, it the openness makes a massive difference i think you're right you know trying to sort of think about it on the on the fly because it's it reduces the barriers to entry but the skills gap is something that we kind of just deal with it as it comes it's less of a concern i think to other companies in terms of what you were saying around stack and the openness side of things, although we welcome sort of these disruptive companies and organizations trying to come in and, and do the best they can with data that we have and the, the tools that we have in, in Earth Observation, what we don't necessarily want is, unless it is much, much better, but it is people coming in and trying to reinvent things that we've spent decades getting towards so i I guess if organizations are approaching earth observation with the same level of openness that the incumbent organizations seem to have then that wouldn't be a problem necessarily the most exciting people are the people who are focused on a clear problem that use earth observation or gis data or geospatial data as a component of that problem because their world is sort of expanding with the data and the, the opportunity that that our sort of small sector can provide. To be honest, I don't think I have much to add to what we've discussed so far. So is geospatial open for disruption from the outside? Very definitely. With respect to computer vision and AI, yes, for sure. But I think also in lots of other areas as well. And hopefully we've sort of covered that in a a nebulous way in in terms of our discussion around the points. But I, I definitely think that Having an open mindset to to these new ideas is not only good for the sector, but it's good for the people within Earth Observation because it means that you're going to be open to potential opportunities with some of these uh, disruptive organizations and companies that are looking to use the data that's generated from Earth Observation data sources and use the software that Andrew's talked about as well in this discussion. So yeah, I think I think there's lots of opportunity for disruption and I I welcome it and uh, I want to see more of it and I definitely want to see people talking about the types of processing and data handling that they're doing and the types of products and services that they're creating. It's exciting times and everyone should be talking about the cool stuff that they're doing. We encourage you to drop us a line through Twitter using at EOSeenFrom, where you can find a vibrant community based around the podcast. Thanks for listening. And that's it for now. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. Bye. I can't even get a text message right. Podcast music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.